As we continue our study here through the book of Genesis, we've come to a passage of scripture that I'm actually going to dovetail off of tonight and we'll finish up chapter 27. So if you turn to Genesis 27 and we'll pick up in verse 30. And as you look at this particular passage of scripture, it's pretty clear. It becomes very clear that ultimately there's going to be a, a reaping of a harvest of this life of lies that's been lived by this family. And most of you know in Galatians chapter 6, if you've been with us for a while, that there's a spiritual law that the Apostle Paul writes to the church at Galatia, a church that had been struggling with legalism, a church that had been struggling with its identity, and a church that failed to understand really the grace of God. And there in Galatians 6, verses 7 and 8, it says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, he will also reap. And if he sows of his flesh, he will of that flesh reap corruption. And if he sows to the Spirit, he will reap of the Spirit unto everlasting life. That is a spiritual law. That is a truth that not a single one of us who loves the Lord will ever escape. You will eventually reap what you have sown. And if you continually sow to the Spirit, you're going to reap from the Spirit. But if you do as this family does, learn from Abraham, passed along uh, through Sarah, down through the kids to Isaac, and from Isaac down to Esau and Jacob, if you continue to live a life of deception, a life of lies, you're eventually going to see a harvest of those lies. Something's going to happen. And what happens in this particular passage is the onset of a very clear path that leads to a massive depression. And so we get some spiritual insight to some of those things that we struggle with from time to time. I have met very few people in my life that ultimately, when you get to know them and talk to them and sit down with them, that haven't at times dealt with what we could say is depression. Some depressed thought processes. Some things, especially for us who love the Lord, where the enemy gets in and begins to feed things into your mind that are based on the truth of how you've lived your life. You have a reason to feel the way you do. And we're going to see that in a very, very clear manner as we pick up here in verse 30 in Genesis 27. So would you join me? We'll pray and ask God to speak to us through his word. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. God, it's able to change us and and mold us and shape us. It's able to change our destiny. It's able to change habits. It's able to break patterns and molds in our lives. And Lord, we pray tonight, I pray tonight, if there's anyone here that's struggling uh, with depression, God, their, their mind constantly tends towards the negative. Lord, would you set them free? Or would you help them? Would you lead them and guide them into that peace that can only come from you? And so, God, we give you this time. 
prayed that your word would speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Now remember, Isaac has sown bitterness. He's sown hatred. uh, He's sown anger and all kinds of family strife. So think about that spiritual law from Galatians chapter 6 and see if what we see here doesn't fit exactly that law. Because we know what Isaac has sown. And it's going to lead to a real deep case of depression. Verse 30, Genesis chapter 27. And now it happened, as soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, and Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac, his father, that Esau, his brother, came in from hunting. Well, duh. Uh, you think he was, <laughs> anybody think he was just going to stay gone forever? Now, this is one of those areas of life that we all need to take stock in to look at and say, you know, you may have the upper hand in your little bits of deception, the things that you say that aren't quite true, but eventually the Esau in your life is going to come home. You're going to eventually be confronted with the truth, and you're going to have to defend what you've said. And when you're a believer and you walk away from the things that the Lord has clearly done in your life and told you in your life, and you begin to walk in ways that are not pleasing to the Lord, the Lord is actually faithful to chasten those of us who love him. Because if he doesn't chasten us, he actually doesn't love us, is what the author of the book of Hebrews says. And so you can expect these things in your own life. Esau comes in from his hunting. He also had made savory food and brought it to his father and said to his father, let my father arise and eat of his son's game that your soul may bless me. Now you can see very clearly that the motivation isn't fully pure here in either son's life. But this is what was expected. This is the norm. And his father Isaac said to him, who are you? Make sure you read that correctly because he thinks he's already blessed him, amen? Who are you? What'd you do with Esau? You, you see the truth beginning to come out in this field of lies that are about to be harvested. And so he said, I'm your son, your firstborn Esau. And now here it comes. Isaac had been led by the flesh. He was thinking with his belly and not his brains. He wasn't listening to the spirit of God. He was after what he wanted. And so Isaac trembled exceedingly. And the the original Hebrew there is in his trembling, he continued to tremble. It's not just exceeding. It's just like, oh, no. I did not just do what I think I just did. He's come to terms with it. And it's not good. And he said, who? Where is the one who hunted game and brought it to me? I ate all of it before you came and I've blessed him. And indeed he shall be blessed. Isaac realizes he's already given away the family blessings. And in order that he remain true to the Lord, he cannot take it back. 
Can I tell you that sometimes your mistakes can't be taken back? Your errors, your poor judgment, the decisions that you make in the spur of the moment, when you're thinking with your belly and not your brain, when you're not listening to the Lord but listening to your stomach or some other part of your anatomy. Because we can do some stinking thinking from time to time, amen? We, We start wishing one way when we know we should go another. When Esau heard the words of his father, he cried with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, bless me, bless me also, my father. But he said, your brother came with deceit and has taken away your blessing. And Esau said, is he not rightly named Jacob? Remember that that name means deceiver or heel catcher, one who grabs at the heel of another man he's he's doing what his namesake said he ought to do for he has supplanted me in these these two times he took away my birthright now look he's also taken away my blessing you can see the importance as parents of being consistent in honoring the lord with every word every thought and every deed in our lives When we let those little areas of compromise into our families, they can have devastating consequences and they can last for generations. So be careful. And Isaac said to him, said to Esau, indeed, I have made him your master and all his brethren I have given to him as servants with my grain, my wine, I have sustained him. What shall I now do for you, my son? And Esau said to his father, have you only one blessing? My father, bless me, me also, oh my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. And then Isaac, his father, answered and said to him, behold, your dwelling shall be of the fatness of the earth and of the dew of heaven above. By your sword you shall live and you shall serve your brother. And it shall come to pass that when you become restless, that you shall break his yoke from your neck. I want you to note that the writer of the book of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 12 actually used this particular person, Esau, as, as one that we can look to, to the dangers of one's life lived in deception. It says there in Hebrews 12, verses 16 and 17, lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright, for you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected because he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. And this is a recipe for depression if there ever was one. Now you can see that Isaac is in fear for what he's done, but he's not fear unto re- fearful unto repentance. He's simply fearful. Man, I've made a mess out of this. Can I tell you that understanding you've made a mess out of things is a step in the right direction, but it's not all the way home. Fear is intended by the Lord to drive you to your knees to get you to do the right thing, not add something else to it that's just as bad as the things that you've already done. 
And unfortunately, a lot of times when we get caught in these types of things, when you've lived a life of deception, you start to follow up that deception with other deceptions, which is exactly what we see in this family. And now you just have one leading to another. And before you know it, nobody has all the things that God wants for them. And in this case, Isaac has actually birthed an entire generation of lying sons. They learned it from their father. It's a lesson for us. Remember that principle. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked that whatsoever a man sows, that he shall, she shall, we shall, sell she shores by, you know, that whole thing. (laughs) You're going to reap what you sow. If you plant fleshly seed, you're going to reap some flesh. That's exactly what happens here. The agony sets in. The sorrow sets in. The begging sets in. This man who despises his birthright and marries two pagan wives is now crying out, how come things aren't well for me? Well, because he began to act on those things that he was shown. And now he's kind of extrapolating uh, this this wrongdoing. He's playing it out over some time. And for the sake of confidentiality, I'll I'll leave most of the details out of the following story. But I met with the family one time a number of years ago. And that family had within it not one, not two, but three murderers. Three of them. They had all gotten involved in the world of drugs and alcohol. They had all gotten involved in the world of gangs. And by the time it was all done, mom and dad and son had all killed somebody. Because they'd watched the path to getting ahead be labeled drugs, alcohol, lying, cheating, deceiving, and thievery. All of them ended up spending time in prison. You got to be careful. It, it, it is a recipe for exactly what we see here. He's crying out. He's like, Father, bless me. Father, bless me. Bless me also. Well, here's the problem. The whole thing's a mess. How is God going to bless anybody in this whole thing? How is the Lord going to step into this and say, okay, well, I'll just bless you in all of your lying? He's not. He may be providentially good. He might do some good things. But you cannot ask for the blessings of God if you're unwilling to submit to what he says. You're just simply not going to get it. You're going to get what you've sown. And as Esau attempts repentance, his own heart here is is so hard that he actually couldn't change his father's mind. He couldn't say, Dad, could we just do a do-over? This whole thing was so far down the line that they're stuck in this situation. It's like, what am I going to do, son? They see he got caught with his hand in the cookie jar. 
And now he's not going to get the cookies that he wants for his life. And so we see this depression begin to set in. And I want you to take note, verses 41 and 45, and you can see these things, so look at them as we read these verses together. Verse 41, and so Esau hated Jacob. That's a great thing to have in the middle of your family, amen? Because of the blessing with which his father blessed him. Do you see what what hate can do? It can take something that is good and turn it into evil. The blessing was supposed to be good. But now he's actually hating because of the blessing. And Esau said in his heart, the days of mourning for my father are at hand. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. Woo! You don't think that these things begin to accumulate accumulate and bear one on top of another? It goes from selling his birthright to wanting to kill his brother. It goes from thinking with his belly instead of his brain and offering himself to the Lord to deciding that the best thing he can do is take one of his own family members' lives. That's hatred. That's why Jesus spoke so much about what's inside. That out of the heart, the mouth actually speaks. With the heart, one thinks unto repentance and does. That if you hate your brother in your heart, you've actually murdered him. As Jesus was speaking there in the Sermon on the Mount, he's just reminding us, look, these things will snowball on you. And the words of Esau, the older son, were told to Rebekah. So she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, Surely your brother Esau comforts himself concerning you by intending to kill you. Now you've got a family that's got homicidal tendencies. Amen? You see it? It's like, what do we, well, I better kill him first. You, you can almost imagine the whole mindset here. It's like, well, he's going to do me. I'm going to do him first. Now mom's in the middle of it. Well, I don't know which one of you I want to do without. This plays out for real, family. And now therefore, my son, obey my voice and arise and flee to my brother Laban and Haran and stay with him a few days until your brother's fury turns away, until your brother's anger turns away from you and he forgets what you have done to him and then I will send and bring you from there. Why should I be bereaved also of both of you in one day? He says, look, I'm going to lose you both if you stay here. You talk about a harvest. And now I want you to see verse 46. Here's that depression. Here's what happens when you go down this road. And Rebecca said to Isaac, I am weary of my life. Because of the daughters of Heth. If Jacob takes a wife of the daughters of Heth. Like these who are the daughters of the land. What good will my life be to me? That's a harvest. Is what that is. And it leads to this state of depression. And so a couple of things that we can see here. You know, the world says basically, don't get mad, get even, amen? Isn't that what the world does? 
He's like, you get me, I'll get you. That's worldly thinking creeping into the life of believers. And we have to be really, really, really careful because these things are all in that passage. Family strife, jealousy, homicidal tendencies, suicidal tendencies, death threats. And this all started from a couple of lies. From not honoring the Lord with our thoughts. And some people ignorantly, I believe, say that no Christian can ever become depressed. And I beg to differ and I think they need to read their Bibles. And so I'm going to ask you to turn to 1 Kings chapter 18. We'll begin there in verse 40 down to 46. And for sake of time tonight, I don't want to read these passages. And then I'm going to ask you to read when you get home all of chapter 19. And this actually is a passage that to some of you will be quite familiar. Because we have lessons here from a depressed prophet. This is the other side. In Jacob's case, Isaac's case, Esau's case, Abraham's case, Sarah's case, Rachel's case. We can kind of see how they got there. They were disobedient to the Lord. But not all cases of depression, not all times when we begin to try and deal with these things. You see, in the case of Isaac, Esau, Jacob, this family, you can kind of see how they could have pretty easily avoided most of these things by simply telling the truth. The story wouldn't have gotten to where it was if they had just been people of the truth. And so for them, we can begin there. But what do we do? Because it's very clear that this whole family actually loved the Lord. They weren't perfect in their implementation of their relationship with the Lord. They actually sinned against God. They sinned against each other. But the result of that was some really, really depressed thoughts to the point they're worried about somebody dying in their own home because of the things that had come into their life from allowing these things into their family. The story that we have here in 1 Kings in chapter 18 and all of chapter 19 is really a depressed prophet. And in case you didn't know, newsflash for you, life can be hard at times, amen? Uh, even, even when we walk with the Lord, you can still have things that come into your life that are difficult to deal with. And if you leave the enemy room, he will play on your emotions, he will play on your thoughts, he will dig into your brain, and he will even manipulate circumstances and situations to where you begin to go the wrong direction. And so I want to give you a few lessons from these passages of scripture here found in First Kings. When you read these things carefully, you're going to see that Elijah the prophet, the great prophet Elijah, is on this incredible spiritual high. But then comes kind of a henpeck king and a domineering wife in chapter 19. But Elijah should have been way up here, but he ends up way down here. And the reason this is important is what has just happened in chapter 18. If you read it, and we'll not go there, but you can read it later, here's what you're going to find. He's been bold. He's been brave. He's been fearless. He has fought the good fight. 
And he stood before 850 prophets of Baal and said, look, uh, where's your God? Is he out like using the porta potty somewhere? What's going on? It's like, if your God is God, then get him to do something. He's fearless. He's like standing in the midst of these prophets going, I dare you. I'm one guy. And oh, by the way, I'm going to take my altar. I'm going to put water on it. And we're going to chant. You go do what you do. Cut yourselves. Do whatever you want. You call down fire. I'll call down fire. And whoever's altar burns up, that's the one who God favors. He like stomps them. In Jesus' name, he's like, he's like kicking it for God. He's won this massive victory. And the next day, he runs face first into a concrete pillar called depression. Over a little tiny woman named Jezebel. Verse 46, chapter 18, and then the hand of the Lord was on Elijah and he girded up his loins and outran Ahab to Jezreel. So he's going to take this journey. He's mentally, physically, emotionally, spiritually, the prophet's worn out. Can I tell you to be aware when you're worn out mentally, spiritually, physically, and emotionally? Because the enemy knows to try and do something with that. Here's a guy that you would think would be perfect. This is Elijah. This is Elijah the prophet that the Jewish people still set a table for at their Passover Seder. There's the empty chair. This is for Elijah the prophet. That guy. That guy is now turned tail, tucked up his panties, and he is running. Okay? Just saying, let's get real here, folks. He's like, he's like girly man running down the road. He's like afraid. The same guy that the day before wipes out 850 prophets of Baal by himself. Verses 1 and 2, chapter 19, 1 King Kings. And now Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah has done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. And then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah. Now she's a Phoenician princess. She's a daughter of one of the kings of Sidon. History says that she's less than five feet tall, around a hundred pounds. She's good looking, but she's not exactly a fierce prophet of Baal. But look what happens. So may the gods do to me and even more if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow at this time. Remember what Elijah is. He's worn out mentally, physically, spiritually, and emotionally. He has fought a great fight and he is down where the enemy can get to him. I call this for pastors, beware of Monday. This is Monday-itis. It's like very often I wake up, it's like, Lord, you hate me. Serious. This is your pastor getting real with you. 
Monday morning, it's like, nobody's coming back to church. They're going to get there on Sunday. There isn't going to be anybody there. Serious. Ask Connie. You can talk to her. She'll go, yes, he's nuts. No, you, you have this spiritual high. People come to faith in Christ. People are raising, they're praising God. They're walking out, Lord, that was the greatest thing ever. I'm going to die. Why? Spiritually, emotionally, physically wiped out. You're wiped out. You spent all that emotional capital. You spent that spiritual capital. You spent the physical capital. You're in a place where the enemy can send to you a little tiny girl. And that's not mocking you ladies because some of you ladies, I don't want to mess with you. This was no veiled threat though. She may have been a tiny package, but she packed a punch. And, and so there was some reality in the threat. She had the ear of King Ahaz. This is his wife. But he's a broken prophet. And this, this reaction that he has here in the story almost takes us by surprise. It's like, what, man, you're a prophet again? I mean, go back in there and tell her what to do. It's like, how can you be depressed? How can you have a problem, Elijah? I mean, me, I get it. I'm not as spiritual as you, but Elijah, you're, you're depressed. You see, there's an interesting thing here. There was just enough reality in the fear of Elijah that the enemy began to seize on it. And you begin to forget who God is and all you can focus on is your problems. All you can see is the negative things. You're not remembering what the Lord has done. You're remembering what he has still yet to do. You get your eyes off of heaven and onto earth. And he stops for just a second. If he could have just for a moment taken a step back and, and remembered the amazing things that God had done the day before. Amen? This is one of those areas in my own life where I have to stop and remember the amazing things that the Lord did the day before. And then go, oh, the devil would like to kill me. Because sometimes you don't think that. You kind of get going and you're exhausted, you're tired, you're spiritually worn out, mentally worn out, you're emotionally worn out, and then all of a sudden you're like, I, I'm, I should just end it right here. Why, why continue to go? I mean, there's nothing left. It's even irrational. And don't get depressed because we're going to talk about some of these things and how the Lord is going to use this chapter to fix this in the life of Elijah. It's, it's a beautiful picture, actually. Fear was real. He's terrified. He's got same thing, threats of death. What happened back in Genesis chapter 27? I just want to die. That's a real thought. Can I tell you that? That's a real thought. People who love the Lord sometimes take their own lives. I, I've done way more funerals than I can even imagine that I would ever have to do of people who I know love Jesus but took their own life. 
So don't dismiss it like it doesn't matter. Some people take the uber spiritual route and say, well, you know, it won't happen to me because I'm super spiritual. Be careful. Because the enemy can dig in pretty hard. Does in the life of Elijah. There's some things that Elijah probably could have been looking for if he'd have actually known what to look for. Those feelings of hopelessness and despair. An overwhelming sense of sadness when there's really no reason for it. There's some things that we would look at and go, man, he's just depressed. When you see those things, there's, there's some things we need to do as believers. Because there are actually some real causes to these things that Elijah should have been able to see, except he was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Be careful about making rational, irrational decisions when you're in one of those places. When it doesn't make sense, you need to stop and ask somebody, does it make sense to you? Get some help. Actually go talk to somebody that you can trust with that and say, man, I've been thinking this. What do you think? And they're going to go, we need to talk. Make sure that person knows and loves the Lord, by the way. Elijah has not slept. Elijah has not eaten. Elijah is completely exhausted. He, He has gone without all of the things that each one of you, me included, needs every single day. You need some rest. You need to let your brain unwind every once in a while. So those symptoms, now all of a sudden you don't even like doing the things that you used to like to do. I'm pretty sure that when Elijah's in the height of all of this glory that's going on in his life, he was, he was like up here. And now that's over and he's down here. So be careful when you begin to feel that way. Be careful when you have overwhelming senses of anger, when you have overwhelming senses of dependency on other people's approval. Beware when you begin to think negatively all the time. God's speaking into your life even through those thoughts that you have. I remember what Elijah's prayer is. In verse 4 of 1 Kings 19, this is Elijah's prayer. And you're going to notice it because it sounds just exactly like the one in Genesis 27. And he came and he sat down under a juniper tree and he requested for himself that he might die. I'm pretty sure if he went and saw a psychiatrist or a psychologist, he'd be on some meds. And that's not mocking. That's You walk into a psychiatrist's office and say, I hope I die. They're going to have a talk with you. And he said, it's enough. Now, Lord, take my life, for I'm not better than my father. Can I tell you that that's actually not all that unusual? So beware if you have those thoughts. And there's a recipe for what caused this, and you'll find it, Uh, In chapter 19, you're in in the book of 1 Kings. Those things when you begin to think the wrong way. What was going on in his life? Was this sin on Elijah's part? I don't believe it was. It would have been sin if he had remained in this state over a long period of time and not returned to the things of the Lord. But this was a temptation from from the enemy. 
The enemy was tempting him with this thought process. And the enemy sometimes will tempt you with these thought processes. So learn what they are and learn the signs. It's kind of like most of you understand that you have engine lights on your car, amen? When that engine light lights up, it's a symptom that there's something wrong. It doesn't actually tell you everything that's wrong. It simply tells you that there's a problem and you need to attend to it. And so some of these things that we find here uh, in this chapter are like that. They're, in essence, a trouble light. And it's at that point in time when you have to make a decision. I have to make a decision. What am I going to do with this trouble light? Because here's what us guys do with trouble lights very often. We grab a piece of electrical tape, which is nice and almost can't see through it. And we put the electrical tape over the check engine light so that we can't see it so it doesn't bother us. Amen? Is that what we do, guys? It's like, there's no problem here. I'm totally fine. You kind of have this weird glow that comes out from underneath the, the, the tape that you put over the spot where the light is glowing. Can I tell you that's a real bad thing to do with your emotions? That's a real bad thing to do with your general health? That is a really bad thing to do as a believer. Even someone who's walking by faith with the Lord is susceptible to troubled things and God lets you see the warning signs so you will not take a piece of tape and cover over it, but that you will do something about it. There's some steps here. They're all found Uh, in the remainder of chapter 19. First thing, and you've got to watch out for this, because not all depression, not all thoughts like this are from sin. They can be from sin. If you're walking in sin, I guarantee you you're going to have some depression as a child of God because God wants you to change. So he'll allow some things into your life, and you'll be going, man, I'm a mess. But in this case, this is the enemy pounding Elijah. A man who obviously loves the Lord. The first thing, he's not thinking realistically. If God just delivered him from 850 prophets of Baal, did he actually really need to fear Jezebel? Absolutely not. No way. Elijah's just killed all the false prophets of Baal to whom Jezebel has pledged allegiance. That ought to kind of tell you something, amen? So she's going, you know, well, my prophets are dead, but I'm going to get you. He's not even being realistic with his thoughts. When you have unrealistic thoughts that come into your mind continually, you need to be very, very, very aware that those are most of the time sent by the enemy. And you need to take those thoughts to the Lord. It's faulty thinking. And it's almost always in the root of this negativity that we call depression. A second thing, and you can see it very easily. Who does he leave out of the picture? God. When we get into those places where we begin to think continually negative, we would call it depression. When you think that way, the person I always leave out is almighty God. The one who's able to do anything, anywhere, at any time, regarding any circumstance, any situation in my life, I'm willing to trust him with my eternity, but I can't trust him for a little tiny servant girl. Do you get it? 
we pull God out of the equation. Now, all of a sudden, we're taking on ourselves things that God has not designed for us to carry. So he's running around, in essence, putting himself in the place of God. He'd gotten out of focus. He's no longer looking to the Lord. You can see this in verses 5 and 6 here in chapter 19. If you look at it closely, the angel of the Lord has been sent to help him. And he's like, well, that's not enough. The angel of the Lord is most often a Christophany. It's actually Jesus himself has come to help. But he's like, well, he can't help me. I got this little girl chasing me, and man, I'm dead. But we can get that way, can't we? Be honest with yourself. And I'm not asking you to raise hands. I don't want you to have to, you know, this is not confess your sin to Pastor Jeff Knight. But I'm pretty sure most of you have had thoughts that when you think back on it, it's like, man, why did I think that? Well, it's because the enemy hates your guts. He wants to kill you. He loves destroying your life. If he can make you miserable by you thinking the wrong things because you lay hold of a thought that is not from him and you continually dwell on it, he's winning. Greater is he who's in you than he who's in this world. Amen? So we have to put God back in the equation. We've got to put him back in the picture. Another thing that Elijah's done, and I see this all the time when I'm talking to people that have problems with depression, the first thing they do is they stop calling every one of their Christian friends. They stop going to church. They stop reading their Bibles. They stop praying, and they go into a corner someplace. I'm dead. God hates me. We cut ourselves off from the very people that God sent to help us. Be careful when you start having those feelings of wanting to isolate yourself. Because that's exactly what Elijah did. He said, I'm going to run. I'm going to hide. And in fact, if you look at this journey, he runs from Mount Carmel, which is in the northern region of Samaria in Galilee. He runs all the way to Beersheba in the south. It's almost a hundred miles. Can I tell you that running from your problems will not solve them? Running away from those things that are bothering you is not going to fix what's bothering you. Those things that are occupying your mind that are making you depressed and feeling terrible about the situation, you cannot run from them. Here's the problem. They're in your head and wherever you go, they're still there. Sometimes we think that if we run, we get some new friends, we go to a new place but you're still stuck with you. The one who's got the problems is still there because it's you. It was Elijah. He cut himself off from the people that could help. Don't do that. Elijah was on the heels of, of a great triumph. Beware, just like I have to be aware on Mondays. You know, you, you sit and you watch God work and people come to faith in Christ and marriages are healed and stuff happens that honors and glorifies the Lord and then come Monday, you're like, oh no. There's a spiritual high and then the, the bomb drops on Monday. That's because the enemy's trying to, to keep you from ever attempting to do that again. 
So know that when you've had a victory, you can pretty much count on an attack very soon after. Well, it wasn't real. God's not even actually using you. This is all. Matter of fact, God's not real. And by the way, I have yet to talk to a pastor that hasn't admitted to those two things to me. When I've asked him very directly, have you ever thought that God doesn't exist? 100% of all pastors I've ever asked that question to have said, yeah, there have been times in my life when I wasn't sure that God exists. That's the enemy. You have to look backwards in order to begin to look forwards. You've got to go, oh, yeah. yeah, I remember that guy used to not be like that. The Lord changed his life. The Lord changed her life. Watch out for those great triumphs. The Lord's worked in your marriage. I see this all the time in married couples. There's been some major problem. The Lord begins to work. It's at least partially, if not most of the way, healed in their, in their life. And all of a sudden, somebody lets the enemy in. And there's just enough truth there. Just like there was enough truth about Jezebel. And all of a sudden, uh, it wasn't real. A fifth thing, Elijah was physically exhausted, emotionally spent. Beware. Give you a little secret about everyone in this room. You're not God. You have human limitations and so do I. You're not almighty, neither am I. You get tired, you get worn out, you get spent. Your body has physical limitations. Your mind has limited capacity to process information. You only have so much storage and you only have so much RAM. You can only process so much and pretty soon this little thing called the meat computer in your head begins to spin a little harder than it's able. And before you know it, it starts spitting out some really weird things. Be careful when you're emotionally spent. The enemy can get in and begin to plant thoughts in your mind. God sends the rains. Elijah actually outran Ahab all the way to Jezreel. And Elijah had gotten in the habit of kind of getting himself physically exhausted. One of the things I have to deal with here is our pastoral staff and the staff of the church. Can I tell you there's always stuff going on here? There's always things to do. And they occupy about 25 hours of the 24 in a day. There's always people in the hospital. There's always people dying. There's always people who want to get married. There's always marriages blown up. There's always Bible studies. There's always a facility to maintain. There's always stuff to do. But he hasn't called anybody to do all of those things always. He's called us to be part of the body of Christ because he knows that each one of us needs some rest. I call it cranky syndrome. Man, you need to take some time off. You got cranky syndrome. (laughs) All of a sudden, everything's negative. You know, I'm doing a wedding tomorrow. I can't stand it. Serious as a heart attack. I've had pastors tell me that. I've got to do a wedding. They just elope or something, you know. They see I'm busy. 
There's always stuff to do. That's almost always because we've gone too far. Connie will tell me very often, you, you look terrible. I say, thank you, sweetie. It's quite a compliment. You know, she, she normally is trying to get me to do exactly what I'm going to tell you here in the closing minutes of our time tonight. You see, Elijah had fallen into that poor me trap. That's where he was. Like, only I'm the only one who's alive that's still left that can do anything. It's all on me. If you actually think that, that is borderline sin, actually, in the life of a believer. Because without him, you can do nothing. Amen? But by him and through you... Through him, you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. Amen? Those truths are opposite ends of the same basic thought. You see, actually, God isn't asking you to do everything. You're asking you to do everything. This has been one of the most difficult things in my life because I am an A-personality overachiever. I'm one of those people It's like, I don't know what I can't do until I can't do it. And if I die trying, at least I died trying. That's kind of my motto. It's like, I died trying. I've had to learn that God hasn't actually asked me to do everything in the entire universe. But there are times in my life where I've actually, if I look back on it, I was being prideful. I was being a little bit arrogant. It's like, Lord, I mean, obviously, if I don't get it done, I mean, who's going to get this done? Oh, that's right. You're the King of kings and Lord of lords. You can probably accomplish this without me. Matter of fact, you'd be better off if you did, actually, now that I think about it. But we take so many things on ourselves that are not ours that we're wandering around with all this weight and this stuff that we're carrying. It's like we've got this huge bag of rocks and God's trying to yank it off of our shoulders and tell us, no, that's not for you. And we're going, well, give it to me. I need to die with this. That's exactly what happens in verse four. I need to just die. Self-pity will lead you down a road of depression. You start thinking that way, the enemy will reinforce it. You'll have your faults brought before you. Anybody ever had that experience when you begin to think negatively? All of a sudden, do you have one of those days where the enemy just goes, see, I told you, you are worthless. Because like nine people that you know will walk in, you know, you're really terrible. They've been stirred by the enemy. They have the gift of discouragement and they want to use it. (laughs) Willing to be used of the enemy to help you terminate your own existence while you're here on this earth. They don't know they're doing that, but the enemy knows how to stir them right at that moment where you've tried to carry the world on your shoulders. What did Jesus say? My yoke is easy And my burden is light. So if you're carrying something that's too heavy for you, it's probably not yours in the first place. Now, that doesn't mean that you're not going to have things in your life that aren't going to be hard. You're going to have hard things. But what you do with those hard things is up to you. Let's look at some solutions as we close. They're found here from verse 5 to 21. And so you can jot these down. Remember, you can download these slides from the internet too. You can just go on the website and pull them off and you'll, you'll have all these things exactly as they are on the screen. First thing I want you to notice, 
Do you see anything in the story of Elijah? First thing that we see in verse 5, he lay down and slept under a juniper tree, and behold, there was an angel touching him, and he said to him, Rise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there at his head was a bread cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water, and he ate and drank, and he lay down again. Do you see Elijah, go grab a jug of wine and drink yourself into oblivion. Go take a couple of hits off of a bong. Uh, You know, drown your sorrow. Would you go self-medicate? Do you see that there? No, you don't, because that's not the Lord speaking into your life. He would never tell you to go do something that he already has told you as a sin. So when somebody comes to me, well, the only way I can deal with this is I need to go drink, or I need to go smoke, or I need to go take a bunch of pills to do this, or I need to go assuage my pain by doing something to alter my state of mind, I can always tell you that that is not from the Lord. There is no such place in the life of a believer as self-medication. So if a doctor has not prescribed it for you, it's not from the Lord. It's you taking the easy way out. So be very, very, very careful. What does God tell Elijah to do? He says, get some rest and get some refreshment. He says, take a nap and get something to eat. He doesn't say, alter your state of mind so that you can't remember any of these things. He says, get some rest, get some R&R, basically. The journey's too hard. The journey's too far. I want you to take care of yourself, Elijah. A second thing that we see here, so important for us, especially you guys here tonight. You know, we're kind of adverse to talking about our feelings. You put a bunch of guys in a circle and say, tell me how you feel. It's going to be a long silence. We don't talk about how we feel. Sports scores, yeah. Philip Rivers set an NFL record today. I can tell you about that. But how I feel? No, I'm not going to expose them. No way. But yet God has someone in Elijah's life that he can talk to. God helps Elijah communicate those things. Notice what he says, verses 8 and 9. He arose, he ate, he drank, he went in the strength of that food for 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, to the mountain of God. And there in a cave he lodged there, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him. He said, Elijah, what are you doing here? Well, I've been very zealous for the Lord of hosts. The sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant and torn down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I'm left alone, and they seek my life to take it away. And what does God do? He says, well, that's not exactly it. I've still got a few folks alive. You're actually not alone. Let's talk about this a little bit. And the third thing is God actually reminds him, look, you're not alone. You can see it in verses 11 to 13. Go forth, stand on the mountain of the Lord. Behold, the Lord was passing by in a strong wind rending the mountains and breaking to pieces the rocks before the Lord. And after the wind, an earthquake. The Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the gentle sound of blowing. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and he went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. And behold, a voice came to him. And he said, Elijah, what are you doing here? 
What are you doing? God was with him. Can I tell you that you and God is a supermajority? That you and God is a recipe for a victory? That God by himself is able, even if you were not? And so he gets him thinking the right way. Reminds him, look, you're actually not alone. And as you read the rest of the story, God brings Elisha alongside of him, gives him a friend. We all need friends. Now, I'm not saying you need to go out and, you know, rustle up a whole slug of people that you can call your friend. But I'm telling you that the Lord wants people in your life that you can talk to. That you can share the seeming crazy things that you think. The things that are going on in your mind that maybe you wouldn't share with somebody who doesn't have your best interest in mind necessarily. So he's got a friend. He keeps him talking while he's healing. You know, I watch so many people that have almost gotten there. But they go back to that place of isolation and all of a sudden they're not hearing from God anymore. They're not hearing from their friends and the enemy creeps back in. Man, don't let that happen to you. Sometimes you just got to talk through a few things while you're in that state of healing. Let God do that in your life. And the final thing, we'll wrap this up. Once again, God becomes the exact center of Elijah's life. God takes his rightful place. When you push God out to the perimeters of your life, when you tell God, no, I got this. When you say to God, it's like, well, nobody cares. And then you act like nobody cares and you won't receive what God wants to give you. You take the focus off of God. You get God out of the center and you put him on the periphery. He needs to be in the center. He needs to be with you in that time when you're not thinking right. It's really easy to to just focus on our problems. It's easy to focus on the things that aren't going right. It is easy to kind of turn ourselves over to just the random thoughts of our mind. You have to put God back in the center. And I can tell you for me personally, this is one of those areas that I am tested. It's like sometimes the Lord is directly in the center. And I'm not telling you this to frighten you about your pastor. I'm telling you that even pastors can get to that place to where we let God get a little bit out of the center. And what we're really looking at is all of the stuff. Because like it or not, pastors have the same problems that you do. We have all of the same things going on in our lives. Plus all the stuff that God's doing here at the church. So we're not immune But I found in my own life that when I have problems, which praise him is a whole lot less frequently than it used to be. I would even call it rare. But when I do get to that place to where I'm not thinking right, it's because I've allowed God to move out of the center and he's someplace off to the side. And I need to get him back in the middle to where he is what I see first. 
He is who I know first. He's the one I talk to first. He's the one I'm looking to answer my questions first. He becomes primary. He is front. He is center. We used to teach astronomy to to young kids. We used to actually tell them about spatial distance in space by using their hand. And there was always a sense of amazement because you could take your hand and span between the stars that are in the Big Dipper and tell them that that represents about 14 and a half billion miles. And they're like, no, it's, my hand's only like seven inches across. Yeah, but when you see your hand in front of your face, all you can see is your hand, but what you're actually looking at is still 14 billion miles. You see, sometimes we need to make sure that we're putting God here and then everything is relative to God being in the center and not the 14 billion miles. But if all you do is look up at the night sky, your point of reference is the 14 billion miles. It's the emptiness and the vastness of space. It's your insignificance relative to those things. But when you're staring at the hand of God, when you're looking at things through his perspective, all of a sudden you go, eh, that's nothing. Another one of those, and you can kind of work your way around through the constellations in the sky. God holds the universe in the palm of his hand. So when you have a big God, your problems seem small. But if you have big problems and you stare at them first, then your God seems small. You've got to leave him first. It's more of him. It's less of me. And he will, as Isaiah rightly knew, keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because you trust in him, because you trust in the Lord. So don't let those thoughts rob you of joy. Make sure that you have people that you can communicate with. Make sure that you keep God in the center. Make sure that you talk through things. Make sure you don't let the enemy feed your mind with stuff that shouldn't be there as a child of God because God loves you and he's got a perfect plan to deal with those things. And if the burden seems too heavy, it most likely is not for you in the first place. You need to let God have that. Let him redistribute that weight. Give it to some other people. God's given you a burden to carry, but he will never crush you with the burden that he's given you. And if you're being crushed, that simply means that burden is not from him. Father, thank you for the power that we have to be set free from these things that weight us down, Lord, that cause our minds to swirl in negative directions. Lord, thank you for the picture of this amazing prophet who struggled, Lord, with his thought life. And I pray if there's anyone here tonight that, Lord, they're just prone to negative thinking. Lord, they they lay hold of things and, God, they run through every single scenario they can possibly think of and it weights them down and it burdens them and crushes them. It pains their hearts, Lord, and they're, they're carrying something that's not from you. God, would you tonight set them free? Lord, thank you that you love us. Thank you that you have blessed us with that perfect peace because our minds are stayed on you. Lord, would you help us to be people who surrender 
Lord, not to the plans of the enemy, but to your grace. Lord, people who are confident in how big you are and what you're able to do. And Lord, that we're not confident in ourselves. And that lack of confidence in our own selves actually gives us peace because we need you and you will do what is your good and perfect will. Lord, nothing can thwart that. And so God, keep us at peace. We surrender our minds to you. Help us, Lord, in the areas that we struggle. In Jesus' name, amen.